I acknowledge that the land I work, live, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Welcome to episode 72 of Vanix Van. I'm your host, Vandalay, and I'm joined today by the moth detective himself, entomologist and insect evolution researcher, Jonathan Uriel. How's it going, Jonathan? Hi. Yeah, it's going great. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, anytime. Um, is that is that accurate that you're an entomologist? I didn't say that in any of your... Uh... It is accurate. Uh, moth detective is my Twitter handle right now. It's a little inaccurate. Um... I just, you know, it has the same acronyms as MD, so I thought it was funny. Um, but I actually work on uh, aphids. Wait, what's special about aphids? Oh, I mean, man. I'm sure there's a lot. Yeah, so I'm, I'm doing my master's right now at uh, Simon Fraser University. I study aphid evolution, and they're a, a really neat insect with which to study evolution because they have uh, this really wild life cycle where they reproduce by cloning themselves. And when you reproduce by cloning, really the only thing that limits how quickly you can reproduce is the amount of space in your body that you devote to ovaries and how quickly you feed. And aphids are like 90% ovary and all they do is eat. So they, they reproduce like super fast. My species reproduces like 10 times a day. When you're producing that many babies, uh, there's a lot of like interesting things that can happen. So are you able to then affect the course of their evolution? Well, that was kind of the central question of my master's thesis. So aphids, because they reproduce clonally, there's no uh, opportunity for all the like classic uh, genetic recombination that comes with sex. And so you would think that uh, that kind of gets rid of natural selection. Um, but that, in fact, is not the case. Aphids can use epigenetic modifiers. So if an, if an adult aphid is stressed, experiences stress in her environment, she can send hormonal signals down to her developing embryos, which are identical genetic clones of her. But the those hormones modify the gene expression in the embryos. And so the babies that pop out uh, look and behave totally different from the parents. Uh, like they develop new traits, new kind of physiological features. And so they can adapt to their environment in that way uh, while reproducing completely asexually so you said you said her are all aphids female or are they hermaphroditic they can produce males if they need to to reproduce sexually and typically they do that once a year but for the most part every aphid you see is a female yes they're kind of like bees in that way i didn't know that about bees oh yeah man every bee that you see is a female bee there huh. are males but they're pretty rare and they only come out at one time of the year do they just come out to breed with the queen? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, what a life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the uh, wildest thing you've discovered in your process? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question. I am, I'm a pretty early career researcher, and I haven't made that many big discoveries uh, as of yet. I would say for my master's, the thing that I'm most excited about is I'm actually sequencing the genome of my aphid species. And the sequence... This genome has been sequenced before, but using old technology, like back in 2006. And that tech, it was it was fine for, you know, 2006, but it, uh, hmm, 
it misses certain genetic elements that I'm particularly interested in. So I had a, the genome resequenced using a new technology, and I found that the actual genome size is almost twice as big as the old predicted genome. So right. that's, that's pretty exciting. But yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure it is. What so what is that? Uh, what is that? main or if uh, you don't got that far into it yet i haven't quite gotten that far into it but basically so like some all sequencing is done like in a machine right and it all comes down to uh like chemistry and the machine has to interact with dna at a chemical level uh and so as sequencing technology has advanced and gotten better and better we're able to more exactly manipulate the dna and and better uh sequence it along its whole length and so DNA, you might like have this kind of image in your mind of DNA as being this kind of like semi-random string of like uh, A, C, G, T, you know. I just, I just think Gattaca every time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's not, the structure isn't quite random like that. There are huge tracts of DNA that are very, very structured and actually have these highly repetitive regions. Like it'll be A, T, A, T, A, T, A, T for like 10,000 base pairs or whatever. Uh, and you've heard about like junk DNA. Um, that is a big part of what makes up junk DNA, but it's not junk, you know, it doesn't code any information, but the fact that it, it's there uh, is really important. It's a structural element within the DNA. And those structural elements historically have been really difficult to get with sequencing technologies, old sequencing technologies, but I'm using uh, kind of newer cutting edge stuff and I'm hoping to better map all of those kind of structural elements and with that get a, a better physical map of the, the genome. So why, why aphids? That's a great question. So I guess I got into aphids because they're a huge crop pest, especially in greenhouse agriculture. And I'm really interested in uh, studying biological control. So that is using natural enemies like predators and parasites and pathogens as opposed to chemical pesticides, which is really common uh, nowadays in, in BC greenhouses. Uh, there's kind of a big movement back in the uh, 80s and 90s to get that off the ground and now people are really really picking it up but there's still a lot we don't know you know if you're using natural enemies you're basically trying to emulate a natural system inside this greenhouse uh, and because you're emulating a natural system you have this kind of natural push and pull of natural selection and evolution that happens that you can't necessarily control and if we want to design really good biological control uh, programs, we have to understand that. And so that's my research is kind of going towards that. Well, I come from a country with a massive cautionary tale of trying yeah. that with uh, boll weevils yes. and cane toads. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Australia is just generally kind of a biocontrol nightmare. You have invasive camels, sheep are invasive, rabbits uh, are rabbits. Big one. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> It's just every invasive species that's been introduced there has really gone haywire. Uh, cane toads, especially. I think when I was the infamous. Yeah, I I love that documentary, Cane Toads: The Conquests. I watched it many times when I was a kid. Have you seen that? I haven't. Oh man, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but it's this like really sensationalized documentary about cane toads, and it it it's uh, has quite a, a bit of science in it and it follows some like people who are who are studying and following the cane toad epidemic but a lot of it is just interviews with people who were affected by it like there's this family their dog ate a cane toad and it got poisoned and the, the documentary has this like dramatic reenactment of the dog eating a cane toad and it's just so it's really over the top and ridiculous it's sounding 
uh, more familiar the more you talk about yeah. talk about it. I'm I'm sure we probably watched it in in a uh, primary school. Yeah, I I hope it's a classic in Australia. It's such a great uh, kind of way to reach a broad group of people is to have this kind of like you know it's it's kind of dramatic but not dramatic enough to lose the facts you know they still get all of the 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 biology and the science across uh, while really really drawing you in with this narrative structure it's great i'd really do recommend you, it do you uh in in your research in your um, tertiary schooling did you learn about the the boll weevil and uh on is it the boll weevils the cane toads were introduced oh that's a good cane beetles yeah, yeah. it's a beetle yeah. Um, I, we, yeah, we learn quite a bit about that kind of stuff. Uh, my master's program is more of an applied program. So there's a lot of coursework, some field courses. So we learn about like how, you know, invasive species have changed agriculture and ecosystems all around the world. That's part of it. What got you into studying insects in the first place? Oh, that's a great question. I think like when you ask a lot of people, what got you into science or what got you into like uh, being a natural scientist, uh, a lot of kids will say like dinosaurs, uh, space or bugs. I went through a bug phase when I was like five or six and I was 20 years later and I'm still like, Oh, it never you know, ended. No, no. Uh, yeah, I'm still head headstrong. It's not looking to slow down anytime soon. I love insects. I always have. Yeah. Have you, uh, kept pet insects throughout this whole time? No, not throughout this whole time on and off. Um, I, really prefer to just watch them in nature i'm also not very good at keeping pets uh my apartment where i'm living right now doesn't have very good temperature control so i wouldn't want to like keep any uh like tropical insects or anything because i'd be worried about freezing them out but one great thing about working in an entomology lab is we have all of the facilities to keep insects and grow them and rear them we do that as part of our research so on the side because we have extra space i have a colony of stick insects uh, which I'm looking after right now. And we use them as outreach tools uh, when we do like science outreach activities with kids and school classes. But they're also my little babies and I take care of yeah, them. Yeah, I, I see you post about them a lot on Twitter. Yes, I'm extremely invested in them. <laughs> right now, they've just reached adulthood and have started laying eggs. And uh, I would love for those eggs to hatch, but it can take anywhere between like six months and a year. They're uh, so very different from the aphids. Yes, yeah. Super long, stretched out life cycle. So I've just got to kind of wait. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw a stick insect. Um, I spent a lot of years in my childhood in Malaysia. Right. And it was on my brother's head. And I thought it was a robot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I'd never heard of one. I'd never seen one. And it wasn't introduced by an entomologist or something. Like mm -hmm. we lived in the tropics. It just kind of fell it, out it of the tree. Just, <laughs> yeah, it had just walked onto his onto his head. That's hilarious. Yeah, they really do look like little robots with all of their legs moving kind of in, in unison. They're really weird to watch. Yeah. What are your top five favorite insects? Oh, my God. People always ask, what is your favorite insect? And it's like choosing your favorite kid. Like, it's so, so difficult. But top five I could do cause in, in no particular order. I love aphids. The, like, having studied them for so many years, really, really, like, I've become infatuated with them. They're so cool, so interesting. Uh, we still, we don't know so much about their biology and their life cycle, even though they're one of the biggest uh, kind of omnipresent crop pests worldwide. I also have a real soft spot for bumblebees. I worked with bumblebees for uh, about a year in my undergrad, and they're just 
so charismatic. Everything about them is adorable. Uh, Bumblebee honey is delicious. Most people won't get a chance to try it, but if you do, you should snap it up. It's it's way better than honeybee honey. Where, where can you get it? I, I've never seen it in stores. I've never seen it for sale. People don't typically use bumblebees as commercial pollinators and they don't use them to produce honey commercially so it's hard to get a hold of you kind of have to know somebody who's a beekeeper who or who now, now i really want it all i want in my life now is, is bumblebee, bumblebee honey. honey yeah it's great uh i worked in uh, blueberry fields and we had bumblebees that were commercial pollinators there so blueberry bumblebee honey is probably the best honey i've ever had in my life so that that is definitely puts it in the top five uh next paper wasps wasps get a bad rap in general um and you know some of them really deserve it but there are many species of wasps and some not all of them are that bad and even the ones that are aggressive have you know their their place in nature it's just when we humans start to build stuff around them that they get a little antsy and i can't really blame them for that uh so paper wasps uh super cool their biology is actually very similar to that of bumblebees and uh they uh live in these very small tight-knit social groups and they can actually recognize the faces of their nestmates. They're very, very social insects, and they're a lot smarter than you might think by looking at them. Are they one of the wasps that uh, hunt things like uh, spiders and cockroaches? Yeah, sure. Maybe not that big, uh, but they'll hunt things like caterpillars and millipedes and things like that. Yeah. So I, I appreciated wasps in Australia because uh, I've had a phobia of cockroaches my whole life. Oh, One yeah. of my favorite things about moving to Vancouver is I've been here almost three years and I haven't seen one. We, yeah, we do have roaches here in Vancouver, but I've never seen one either. I know where they are because I work in an insect lab and I have like friends who've worked on them, but I've never, ever seen one. <laughs> Uh, I I couldn't I couldn't go a week without seeing one in Perth. Yeah, um, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Swarms of them, the big flying kind. Yeah. Anyway, I I hate it. How do you feel about roaches? They're all right. I've never had to live with them, and so I think I can kind of maintain this almost academic distance away from it. Uh, but uh, just don't like a, a, any insect where I can hear its footsteps. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I totally get that. And like I, the only real insect pest. I've ever had to deal with uh, are meal moths, or like right. little grain yeah. moths that, that get in my kitchen every once in a while, and fruit flies. And like I have nothing against them, but when I see them in my house, it's like ah, ah, I hate it. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I totally, keep, totally keep them in the get lab. It. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're on number three out of we're five. We're on number three so. out of five. Oh my god, um, there's so many to choose from. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Let's think. I'm a big fan of the tiger swallowtail butterflies we have up here. Uh, a lot of entomologists i think will kind of like poo-poo butterflies they'll be like oh they're just like you know the pandas of the insect world big charismatic insects that everyone likes but really they're not they're not that cool unless you meet someone who studies butterflies then don't don't tell them i said that um but i love the tiger swallowtails they're the big yellow and black ones that you usually see um maybe starting in a few months they're kind of one of the first butterflies that come out in early spring late summer and they're the one of the biggest butterflies that we have here in canada they're really really phenomenal uh, you'd know it if you saw it. Where's the best place to find them? I mean, they used to be super, super abundant here, less so now, probably due to climate change. In the past few years, I've been seeing less and less. Uh, but if you go to meadows, if you like to go hiking out in the Fraser Valley, uh, there's quite a few there still, some good pockets. I'll try and make it out. I do like uh, butterflies. There used to be a, a huge like lepidoptery exhibit at Perth Zoo. Mm-hmm. It was like a... Uh... 
like a massive greenhouse essentially oh, yeah, with lots yeah. of them in it. But I I don't know why they got rid of it. That's super cool. I mean, they're really hard to maintain. Butterflies are so finicky, especially when you have so many different species kind of living under one dome. Yeah, uh, yeah, it can get get pretty tricky. Just rearing even one species in a lab is is a a huge challenge. <laughs> so I I can understand uh, it. Like you need a lot of oversight. You need like trained professionals to do it. So. Hey there, lovely listeners. I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to tell you about my show, Everything Economics. Every week, I talk about the world around you, specific social and economic issues, and dive into how fantasy realms would work in real life. That's Everything Economics on the Cave Goblin Network. It was kind of grim, right? So Talia and I went to the uh, Audubon Insect Museum in New Orleans. Oh, cool. A few years ago, which was really cool. But they have this open-air butterfly enclosure sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And there was just... It was carpeted with dead butterflies. Oh, yeah. They that were everywhere happen. around, but you just look down <laughs> and you just just don't look down because it's just covered in corpses. They really are very ephemeral. Yeah, they're so fragile. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah. Okay. Favorite insect number five. There's going to be another butterfly, which is very uncharacteristic for me. Um. Skippers. There are these tiny, tiny brown butterflies that most people will never, ever notice, but I... And they're named for their erratic flying style. They kind of uh, uh, fly for a little bit very quickly and then land. And then they stay there for a bit. And then they'll do that over again and have these kind of hopping flights. So they're not quite as spectacular as other butterflies. But um, having seen them up close and like interacted with them, I think they're the cutest insect I've ever seen. They're so adorable. Yeah, and we have a couple Cuter than a bumblebee? Here. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Wow. It's a tough gonna, competition. Gonna have to look out for them. And they exist in BC? Oh, yeah, we've got them, tons, tons of them. They're around all the time. Yeah, how to describe it? Most butterflies, when they rest, hold their wings upright. Uh, and that's that's one of the telltale signs that it's a butterfly as opposed to a moth, is that they hold their wings upright. Moths tend to hold their wings flat to the ground. Uh, skippers hold, they, they have two sets of wings, four wings, and they hold their uh, two sets of wings at opposing, opposing angles. So it creates this kind of like weird inverted triangle shape around around them. So if you know what to look for, uh, they're pretty distinct. Yeah, incredible little butterflies. Uh, they have a very specialized kind of lifestyle. Cool. Yeah, yeah I've just Google imaged them now. They do look pretty cute. Yeah. They've got some fun coloring. Are there any insects you don't like? This is a, an excellent question. I think... There are insects that I resent somewhat, uh, like, you know, uh, bed bugs. I think are a huge nuisance. Uh, the their only saving grace is that they don't spread human diseases. Uh, any insect that spreads human disease, like I can't say that I really like mosquitoes or uh, kissing bugs or anything like that. Like I appreciate that they have a role in ecosystems and that yes, they're very important and mosquitoes are a huge important food source for bats and birds and frogs and stuff but they're also the you know if you consider uh m mosquitoes as vectors of malaria to be you know the cause of the disease they are the single most deadly animal in the world as yeah. a disease vector so I, I can't really say that i like mosquitoes well growing up in malaysia it was we were of trying course. to be afraid of mosquitoes yeah and the, you should dengue be. and ross river mm-hmm there's some really, really nasty stuff. I mean, again, mentioning like insect population patterns changing with climate change. We're going to get West Nile virus here. It's just a matter of time because the, the mosquitoes that carry West Nile are slowly, slowly moving our direction. So um, what 
animals are we going to introduce here to stop that some kind of like super iguana <laughs> there's no way we would never do biocontrol against mosquitoes it's so infeasible there are a couple different strategies that people use against mosquitoes um like uh there's a lab just a couple doors down from mine that studies uh, mosquitoes that spread uh, dengue and zika and they're looking at ways to mess with the mosquito uh with mosquito reproduction um, by introducing uh, bacteria into the mosquitoes that will change their biochemistry and modify their reproductive ratios. So they produce an uneven number of males or females. I shouldn't say too much because I don't, I don't know all the exact details. But That just uh, seems so insidious. It is. Modern biocontrol is a lot more kind of complex, I think, than, than people give it credit for. It's not all just releasing ladybugs, right? A lot of it is, is yeah, like you say, uh, very kind of underhand... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a actually a big facility out in the Okanagan Valley uh, that release raises um, apple coddling moth. Uh, they release or they raise male apple coddling moths and they irradiate them to sterilize them. And so they raise thousands and thousands and thousands of sterile male moths and then they release them all into apple orchards. And the idea is that, you know, the, this huge population of sterile males will still try and mate with females and outcompete and just overwhelm the actual fertile males that exist in the ecosystem and in that way reduce moth populations overall. Um, and that works? It, well, <laughs> it, it, to a limited degree, yeah. If this whole system were in a vacuum in a bubble, it would work great. It would reduce moth populations by huge numbers. But the problem is the... Uh, the only region that I know that really uses sterile insect technique uh, is the Similkameen Valley, where a lot of organic apples are grown, and so they need to rely on these kind of organic methods of pest control. The problem is the Similkameen Valley is shared between Canada and the U.S., and in the U.S., they're not really doing any moth control. So all of their moths just come up and lay eggs on our trees. <laughs> Uh, after our moth populations crash. I so, guess borders don't exist to a no, they, an insect. They absolutely don't care. And so no matter how much money and time and effort we put into our pest control, until the U.S. steps up, uh, coddling moth is still going to be an, an issue uh, in our organic apples. These aren't the uh, kind of big ticket issues you hear about in the... Um... No, it's the Democratic a, primary going no, on right now. It's very contentious for a very small community of people. Um, and if you, you know, if you go uh, to people in, who live in the Okanagan, especially in the Samil Kameen, like they, they're aware of these issues, just like everyday uh, folks. But it all the effects almost never trickle down here to Vancouver because, you know, if the apple supply uh, from the Okanagan dries up, we just buy them from Washington. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's kind of grim as well. I mean, it's almost like they're causing the problem and then selling the apples. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so <laughs> this goes all the way to the top, really. <laughs> uh, what are some myths you'd like to dispel about insects? Oh, whoa. Uh, that's a great question. There are so many insect myths out there, and I wish I could remember a single one. You know, maybe I'll, I'll think about yeah, that for we'll, a minute. Yeah, we'll circle, back, circle to back, that. back to that. Let's tack away from this entirely. You're not just... Uh, I've written you're not just a bug man, but that feels disrespectful. <laughs> no, I'll I'll self-identify as a bug man. You're not uh, just a you're not just a human bug. You also play a clarinet in the carnival band. I do, yeah. yeah. Oh man, I forgot for a moment that this is a Vancouver-centric podcast. Yes, 
uh, I play in the Carnival Band, which is a very locally relevant um, kind of community brass band. Uh, we are kind of based around the commercial drive area uh, at Britannia Community Center, which is on commercial in Napier. Um, but we are uh, a an activist street band that plays like New Orleans style jazz. Uh, and we are everywhere in Vancouver. We play gigs all over the place. Uh, we were at Trout Lake Community Center uh, for Family Day. We play in the Chinese New Year's Parade every year and the Santa Claus Parade. We're at protests all the time. Uh, we play uh, all, all sorts of festivals, Car Free Day. Uh, so you'll see us around. We're uh, the really loud band that you can hear from a block away. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I haven't actually seen you playing before. Well, maybe I have and just didn't know. Mm -hmm. What can you tell me about Honk BC? Oh, well, great question. So the Carnival Band uh, is run by this kind of umbrella organization, uh, the Open Air Orchestra Society, which is a nonprofit. And that nonprofit runs a couple other projects, uh, one of which is Honk BC. That's a, uh, a music festival that we do specifically for acoustic brass bands, street bands, uh, and drum lines and dancers. Uh, the whole festival, not the whole festival, the, the most of the festival takes place outdoors. It's almost entirely free and open to the public. And the idea is just to bring together a whole bunch of different musicians and artists and, and use that to you know, create a space where we can up, uplift people's voices. So like at the uh, actual festival, we partner uh, with community arts groups, with uh, like indigenous groups, and we bring all of these things together to make this kind of beautiful mess for a weekend in the summer. Uh, look out for us at Car Free Day this year in July. Um, we'll be taking over Grandview Park. Oh, I like Grandview Park. Yeah, it's a great yeah. place. Did you uh, manage to think of any any myths? Oh, whoa. About the uh, the insects. <laughs> I got so caught up um, with everything. I guess, okay, uh, there are a few things. These aren't necessarily myths, but... Um, well, misconceptions. Misconceptions, yeah. Uh, one that I ran into just a couple days ago. So dragonflies, fireflies, uh, lace... Mm, yeah, uh, all of those things that have fly in the name, not actually flies. The vast majority of things that have fly in the name are completely unrelated to flies. And unfortunately, <laughs> the only real way to tell if you're looking at a word, whether something is a, a fly or not, is if it if it's two separate words. So if it's house fly, that's a fly. That's a real fly. But yeah. if it's like dragonfly, one word, that's not a fly. That's kind of a, a an easy etymological way. Um, and there are, of course, a lot of entomological ways to know if you're actually looking at an insect, but we, we won't get into that right now. It gets into a lot of like exacting detail, like count the number of wings, count the number of body segments, which I don't think makes for great audio. <laughs> oh, I think I think that um, there's a podcast there in itself, like yeah, the, the entomological etymologist. <laughs> I'm sure it already exists. Yeah, yeah we uh, biologists are a nerdy bunch. We love podcasts, so I'm sure someone's already jumped on that. <laughs> well, I love uh, I love. Uh, now I can't remember which one's which. The one about words, etymology. Etymology, yeah. Uh, I love etymology, so uh, I should try and find some of those. I think in a really early episode of this show, I came up with an idea for an etymological podcast name that is now completely blanking me. Uh, it was Podmanto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, There's. No, I, I don't personally know a lot of etymological podcasts, Um. I'm blanking on the name right now. Helen Zaltzman has uh, a great etymology podcast. 
I wish I could remember the name. Uh, it's great. Helen Zaltzman is part of the pair that does Answer Me This, which is one of the longest running podcasts right. uh, out of Britain. It's great. Uh, you should all look it up. You should all listen to it. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, coming and talking to me today, Jonathan. Oh, yeah. Thanks for inviting me here. Is there anything you'd like to plug on the way out? Whoa. Um, okay, yeah. I, I will, again, plug the Carnival Band. So the Carnival Band uh, is, like I said, a community brass band. One of the great things about the band is uh, anyone can join. We try and practice uh, what we call radical inclusion, where you, you don't have to have an instrument. You don't have to know how to play. You just need to show up. <laughs> so we rehearse every Monday at 7.30 p.m., from 7.30 to 10, at the Britannia Community Center uh, in the 55-plus Seniors Lounge. Uh, and I would encourage everyone and anyone to show up, especially in the summertime. We usually rehearse outside in the courtyard. You can just drop in. We're always looking for, uh, you know, dancers. If you can dance, if you can bang two sticks together, you can uh, join the band as a percussionist. Uh, if you can juggle, please show up. If you're a clown, if you can tumble and do tricks, like... We are a carnival almost more than a band. And so we're looking for all sorts of talent all the time. Uh, so, yeah, um, I'll be there. <laughs> so I'll see you there. And where can people find you online? So I'm on Twitter at snoozreel, uh, S-N-O-O-Z-R-I-E-L. Yeah, that's, that's mostly where I'm at. Uh, you can follow me there for uh, lots of pictures of insects and occasional updates on the band. Thanks for listening to Van X Van. You can find me on Twitter at Vandalay and the show at Van X Vancast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser or iTunes. It's the best way for us to grow at no cost to you. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cavegoblins. I'm Doug Vandalay. See you next time. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.